no humidity They fire at our family Our flow will be the remedy Cause water got no enemy Greetings, everyone. This is Manuela Siniegas, director of the Andrews Family Fund, and welcome to Out of the Margins. Today, we're interviewing Alejandra Ruiz, the executive director of the Youth Engagement Fund. We're so excited to have you here with us, Ale. Hi, how are you? Good morning, Manuela. Thank you so much for having me. Right on. We're blessed to be in company with you. I mean, it's not a coincidence that we worked on scheduling this and it did take us a couple of months, but for good reasons. You were out there, like we say in our communities, quemándote las pestañas, burning your eyelashes, busy at work with the powerful work that youth-led organizing groups were leading on the eve of election season, all the way through elections and the great work that lies ahead post-elections. So we're just curious, tell us who you are, tell us about YEF and what YEF does. Sure. Yeah, it's definitely been quite the, the 2020 and early 2021 so far, but I am the executive director at the Youth Engagement Fund. So at the Youth Engagement Fund, we are a donor collaborative um, that is dedicated to increasing the civic participation and electoral power of young people of color. We have a geographic focus in the South and Southwest, and our priority states are Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, Georgia, and Florida. And we are exploring expanding support into Alabama, Louisiana, uh, and Mississippi. We are a collaborative led by young women of color under the age of 35, and we work with philanthropic partners to really aim to be the megaphone for youth civic engagement within the philanthropic sector and ensure that we are promoting the increase of resources and support and platforms for youth of color groups that are advancing efforts to increase civic participation and shift behaviors around voting amongst their peers and their communities. Such a powerful vision, Alejandra. Can you tell me a little bit about how much do you all move every year? What are some of the capacity building supports that you provide your partners? Uh, yes. So last year was YEF's biggest year yet. We were able to move uh, over $3 million to 53 organizations through the multiple funding streams that, that we were able to engage with last year, which included our general support grants, our COVID relief response action grants, and our youth vote power-up grants. The last year's funds were able to increase the, the reach that we have uh, in terms of the organizations and movement partners that we engage with. So out of the $3 million that we gave last year, 85% went to youth of color focused organizations. And out of those, 71% were led by women of color executive directors. That is so inspiring, Ale, because we know that the number of philanthropic resources moving to people of color-led organizations is extremely limited. And so for a fund like yours to lay claim to the commitment and resource people of color, BIPOC-led orgs, and women-led orgs is really, really inspiring. Now, tell me... Why civic engagement as a tool or vehicle for building political power for communities? And then also, why those focused states that you listed earlier? Yes, definitely. Um, we are all definitely experiencing the demographic shifts in the country. And it's estimated that by 2036, young people of color 
under 29 years old uh, are going to be the majority of the U.S. youth population. So that's really one of the markers that we were aiming to be prepared for to ensure that young people have access to all of the, the multiple uh, streams in which we can ensure that we can access democracy, that they have access to voting, to their elected officials, to making sure that they have a voice in defining what their livelihoods are going to look like, what policies and bills and legislation that can potentially affect their lives, uh, you know, long-term and the shifts in their community. So that's one of the major things. But really, we are, particularly in 2020, when we think about young people, we saw that there was sort of an increase in, in political awareness by youth and an interest in getting more politically engaged. And in this country, the structures by which we see change happening is via electoral processes and via those who are elected to represent us. So we want to make sure that young people have the tools and the resources to be able to create civic engagement tools that they can relate to, that speak to their experiences, that their communities are able to access. These are historically disenfranchised communities who have been left out of the democratic system and who have also felt disappointed and left out by elected officials historically. And we want to make sure that they are able to be at the forefront of what democracy looks like for them and what a dignified and justified and inclusive democracy looks like in their lives. You know, a lot of people think about the struggles to access the voting booth during the civil rights movement, and they think about these challenges and the disenfranchisement as something of the past. What has been your experience for our communities? Like, are there active efforts to prevent young people from getting to the polls and exercising political power and accessing democratic participation? And if so, where have you seen these efforts? Yeah, I mean, if we look just at January and February of 2021 alone, we can see that in over 45 states, there have been over 250 voter suppression laws that have been proposed already. This is just in the first two months of 2021. And when we look back at the results of the November elections and of the Georgia runoff, we see that the shifts that happened in those elections were led by people of color. And when we look at the voter participation for youth, we can see that there was a huge increase for young people of color, particularly in southern states like Arizona and Georgia. So this is a direct um, attack on people having access to the right to vote. So we're definitely seeing intentional efforts at the legislative level to block people from being able to vote and from allowing young people of color who are part of this growing demographic, who are ultimately going to be the leaders in multiple sectors within our society to have a voice in what their democracy and their society looks like and the kind of policies and practices that, that they will be voting on for their communities. So there's definitely uh, continued work to be done there to ensure that people continue to have the right to vote. I mean, just recently we saw the law that passed in Georgia that makes it a misdemeanor for people to give water or food uh, to folks who are standing in line waiting to vote. And that is definitely 
a very clear, I think for me, a violation of human rights. Like how do you deny anyone water in any space, but particularly when we're thinking about, you know, people waiting in line to, to cast their vote. With that one, I think about young people a lot when, you know, they are often the ones who are outside trying to cheer people who are waiting in line to vote making sure that they have what they need um, before they're able to cast their vote. So it definitely is limiting a lot of the activities in which people um, can engage with. So there's a lot of work to do to ensure that none of those over 250 voter suppression bills that have been introduced move forward. Thank you so much, Ale. Can you tell me a little bit about what brings you to this work? I was imagining in real time young people on those lines, you know, stocking up, organizing the plan to bring the water, to motivate people. Like, how did you get to the work of either organizing or civic engagement? What was your history growing up as a young person in the movement? So I I am definitely a product of investment in youth leadership. And so I try to In my work, I try to approach it the same way that a lot of my mentors and supporters did when I started. I was born in Colombia and I grew up undocumented in Queens and New York City. And when I got to high school, I was determined to get to college. One of the reasons my family moved to the US was so that we could have more opportunities. And one of those was educational opportunities. And so I was determined to ensure that I move forward in that path. And in the early 2000s, I was introduced to the DREAM Act. And I remember that I didn't know what organizing meant. I didn't know what it meant for young people to be leading campaigns and to be running their own agendas. And a few weeks later, I found myself sharing my story with members of Congress in Washington, D.C., trying to encourage them to move forward with the DREAM Act legislation. And then over the last, you know, 17 years that I've been in this work, I eventually moved into the philanthropic and money moving space. I always tell people that there were two things that I did not like as an organizer, and that was handing off flyers and asking for money. So this was definitely not a position I envisioned myself in. But I saw that philanthropy and financial resources was key to ensuring that we could move our our work forward the visions of our, of our organizations, which are really trying to push forward policies and efforts that are going to improve our livelihoods and that of our communities and bring justice to the histories and experiences of, of our families and of our ancestors. So I eventually made my way into philanthropy and then here we are. I will say that the one thing about this work in particular, working with young people of color, trying to advance civic engagement efforts, is that I did eventually fix my status. And I have been a voter for about 10 years now. During the 2018 midterm elections was the first time that my mother, my brother, and I were able to vote. And we voted at the elementary school where my brother and I learned English. And it took 24 years for us to get there. So through this work, it really comes full circle for me, having been undocumented than an active voter to be able to support young people to create infrastructures and have a key role in their democracy is huge. It really is. And despite the fact that the disenfranchisement has been essentially baked into our public systems, right? 
we're seeing this upswell of like excitement and energy for young people to get politically engaged and a real connection and renewed interest to actually have elected officials reflect the interests of the people, of young people, the issues that they care about in their communities. Take me back a little bit to the origin story of YEF and how your work has evolved over the years. In a lot of ways, I remember some of our first meetings were a lot about trying to understand what is the landscape for the work and what organizations truly need to be able to get in the game and stay in the game and see significant change. How has YEF's work evolved over the years and what have you learned along the way? Yeah. So I first engaged with the Youth Engagement Fund when I was at United We Dream and NYF was, was a fund at the Democracy Alliance. So many years ago that I've been in the radar with YEF, I really came on board to implement uh, a new strategic plan uh, that was guided by my predecessor and the new advisory board for the new face of YEF, which called for a philanthropic leadership model that demonstrated commitment to racial equity, that supported the advancement of power building of young people of color in their communities, that added value to building political infrastructure in key geographic areas like the South, and that expands resources for youth of color-led efforts that are creating vehicles for young people and communities of color to become lifelong civic participants. So I would say that strategic plan really was the foundation for all of the work that has been built at YEF over the last two years that I have been here. The, the focus in the South and Southwest and on young people of color is very much tied to the demographics that were, demographic shifts that we're seeing, uh, that by 2036, most young people 29 and under will be young people of color. And the states that we work most closely with, Arizona, Texas, New Mexico, Florida, and Georgia, are the states with the highest concentrations of young people of color. And so that's how we're able to really narrow our support in those geographic areas. And there are also infrastructures built in those states. So in Arizona, when you look at the partners of One Arizona, most of the staff in the organizations and the leaders are young people of color who are 35 and under. And if we look at 2020, they led incredible efforts between mutual aid support, between electoral campaigns and other work. But this is so good, how your work has evolved over the years, how you got to a focus on young people. My first year at YEF, I really focused on making sure that I spoke with a lot of colleagues in the sector, philanthropic, organizational, movement partners, to try to understand what the landscape was like. But also, I think it, it speaks to my collaborative approach. I, I am a true Libra, and so I tend to want to bring people together and to have everyone speaking to each other. And I'll say that based on my learnings within philanthropy and how I've seen the civic engagement sector move, I think for YEF's vision for the future, I think there are two pieces to it. So in 2021, we are moving forward to being to supporting 100% youth of color organizations. That has been part of the path that we've been on since 2018, and it's getting implemented this year. We are getting ready now to launch our 2021 summer docket which will include our first multi-year initiative to support a cohort uh, of young people of color 
leaders and organizations to ensure that they have multi-year funding and that they also have a set of offerings that have been identified as key areas of support, which include management, executive coaching, uh, and digital support. We're also working with our partners at Circle to work with the organizations and see how their influence changes over time at the state level and at the national level and within the electoral and civic engagement sector. So that's one of the pieces, really making sure that we are bringing in the resources and shedding a light on young people of color in the South and Southwest. Part of that includes making sure that we start thinking about the new areas that we need to step into. So, you know, I think one of the questions that I'm left with is in right now, I, today we have a mandate for all of us in our institutions to step into what the future of our democracy in this country is going to look like. So the question that I have is in, in 10 years, what are we going to say that we did today? For YEF, one of the areas that we're looking into is making sure that places like Mississippi, Alabama, and Louisiana have the supports that they need in order to be able to build the infrastructure and to engage their community. There are already leaders on the ground there, and, and they need the resources and the support. When we look at places like New Mexico, Georgia, and Arizona, it took 10 years for the wins that we saw in those states to happen. So where are other places where the leadership and the momentum is there? that we need to step into and not overlook and underfund. And then the second piece is also within the philanthropic sector. Right now, YEF is going through an organizational development process where we are honing into what the next three years of our strategic plan are going to look like. And as part of that, one of our visions is thinking about how do we build YEF to be a space within philanthropy that honors the history of people of color, that ensures that young people of color have a voice within philanthropy. And so we're looking to build YEF as a space for young people of color to be able to guide resources, to have a voice into how resources are being returned to the community and to build those partnerships with movement partners on the ground. Such an inspiring vision, Ali. How long has YEF been in existence? YEF has been in existence since 2008, mm-hmm. but we have been neo-philanthropy since the end of 2017. And, and is that when you arrived at YEF? I came on board at the end of 2018. I came so November, <laughs> right in the midst of the midterm elections. Very on brand. <laughs> and onboarded your current team during the COVID pandemic. Is that right? That is correct. Yes. My first team members joined YEF in November of 2019. I onboarded the team in 2020. Yeah, we had our staff retreat in December and we were reflecting that 2020 was really the year where everything happened to IEF. You know, we were onboarding a new team, learning how to work with each other, training building the organization while also being responsive to the pandemic, to the uprisings for for Black lives, to a general election, all of which all of our movement partners were very deeply uh, involved in. That's amazing. Are you a first-time executive director? I am a first-time executive director. (laughs) 
and you're kicking butt. And so what does it take, right? We're currently interviewing our movement partners for this manifest portion of our podcast. Mm -hmm. What does it take on a personal level to be a woman of color leading an organization that is speaking to a sector that has historically overlooked and underfunded youth of color and BIPOC communities? Mm -hmm. Yes, it, it really does take a village. As I shared earlier, I am a product of investment in, in youth leadership, which includes the resources that foundations gave to the organizations that I was a part of, who then were able to hire me or give me stipends or, you know, take me to conferences, provide, you know, access to trainings. I'm very aware that I came in with a lot of knowledge and training already from having grown up in, in organizations and political homes from when I was in high school. Having that uh, under my belt definitely helped me stand in my power as a first-time young woman of color executive director in philanthropy. But it takes a multitude of people from my aunt making me meals and making sure that I feel nourished to my friends being in shared spaces with me and laughing or agreeing to create food pantries during the pandemic in our communities and also an incredible team. Growing a team during a time like 2020 really builds a, a new level of resiliency and, and trust with each other. The way that we've been able to work with each other has been tremendous. So it takes a lot, for sure. It, it's not easy. Having people that are open to listening, to being in conversations is important. As someone who is, I, I would say that I'm still relatively new in philanthropy, even though I've been doing fundraising since 2012 as a grantee uh, and a development director, there is a bit of, oh my, there is a bit of political correctedness within philanthropy. It has been important to stand in my values and engage in sometimes difficult, but I hope transformative conversations with my colleagues within philanthropy, especially my white um, colleagues about, you know, how do we partner with each other? What is at the core of our partnerships as funders with movement partners? It, it, it takes a lot. <laughs> I appreciate that authenticity, that honesty, Ale. And I hear you that some of your work as convening a donor table is to get folks at the table to think about how to shift their philanthropic practice. If you had a magic wand and you could immediately get all funders in this space to change the way we show up to support the young people that you're serving and the organizations that you're trying to strengthen, the movement that you've been co-envisioning alongside your grantee partners to strengthen its infrastructure, right? What would you wish we would learn to do? What do you wish we would stop doing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think ever since I took the role at YEF, I've been wanting to do a briefing that's called Not Another Funder Briefing, and maybe it's time to do it, where we have the funders tell us what's, tell, tell the movement partners what's going on, and not vice versa. I came from the immigrant youth movement, and one of the things that I've seen in philanthropy is a bit of hesitation to take action sometimes. And I struggle relating to that. I think particularly having been undocumented in the immigrant youth movement, we needed to move forward. So this idea of hesitation is something I struggle with. I, I would ask my philanthropic partners to, to get creative. I understand that we are part of institutions 
um, and organizations that have bylaws and that were built on a set of clauses and visions. But times are changing. As we often say, like sometimes the laws need to change with the times. I think that a little bit of that needs to start happening. That needs to start happening within philanthropy as well. Let's get creative about, you know, what does it look like to do grant making that is following the strategy of our movement partners and not vice versa? What are some minor shifts that we can create within the processes that will make it easier for? organizations to have access to the resources within the philanthropic sector. I will say that philanthropy has been around for a long time and philanthropy is going to be around for a long time. And philanthropy is changing. The social movements that we support are changing. What leadership looks like is changing. And I think it's important to make sure that we're thinking about how to dismantle gatekeeping within the philanthropic sector to ensure that new leadership is is able to come in and share their perspective and take the leadership role within the sector, but also to ensure that emerging organizations that, you know, perhaps are non-traditional are also able to take bloom. Right now, I think the moment that we're in is calling us for us to be more open to an even more expansive set of strategies and, and ways of doing leadership if we're really trying to shift our country to one that is representative of us, that honors our history, and that ensures a a true and inclusive democracy for everyone living here. Right on. And, you know, as you think about some of the things that you've been a part of at YEF that you're most proud of, what are those experiences? And can you share a little bit about what happened and, and why you're proud of those moments? What are some of the things that stand out for you in history around um, things that you know you were involved in helping support the impact and why did it happen? Everyone in the YEF team, we also consider ourselves organizers. We are now resource organizers, but we were also organizers moving policy and doing advocacy work. And at the core of our work is our relationship with our movement partners. We feel very strongly that if at the the, the heart of YEF is our movement partners. And from there, everything else moves forward. I'm most proud of our relationships with our movement partners. I'll, I want to give one example. So in 2019, two of my colleagues, Liz and Renata, came on board in November of 2019. And we started thinking about 2020. And thanks to our analysis of the youth and philanthropic sectors and experience as previous organizers, we were able to foresee challenges and opportunities that young people might face in 2020, particularly around civic participation. So we decided that we were going to move most of our 2020 funding through in our 2019 winter docket. We sort of like got together and figured it out. And through that docket, we brought in a new organization in Arizona called Rural Arizona Engagement. At the time, I remember we were their biggest funder. And when I met with them in January, we had a really great conversation. We worked with Ray's to uplift them and to support them in their fundraising strategy and to ensure that they had the tools and resources to continue to grow. YEF is no longer their largest funder, and that's good. That means that we've done our job. 
We feel really proud to be able to work at a deeper level with organizational partners when they call us to ask us for support in very specific ways. That's really powerful because, I mean, for other donor intermediaries or philanthropies, it actually signals a shift in our practice around where, what are we spending our time on and how do we respond to the needs of our partner organizations? How do we build enough trust to be invited in to uh, help shape and inform something that's really fundamental and transformative for that organization, such as their fundraising strategy? And so I think that's a wonderful example mm -hmm. of your impact. Um, and yeah. really what did it take to be the group that people trusted to come in? There's one more example I want to share before, before I move on that I just remember. So the first funder briefing that I hosted was at the Ford Foundation in November of 2019, which was also the first day of work for my colleagues Liz and Renata. So they just jumped right in. And we brought in several young people from movement partner organizations During one of the, the chats in the hallway, there were at least two from youth leadership organizations across the country who said, they were like, oh, this is my first time at the Ford Foundation and at a briefing of this size. And I, I was surprised because, you know, they are leaders from very well-known organizations within not just the youth civic engagement sector, but the civic engagement sector in general, and also other issue areas that they work in. I remember thinking to myself, I'm doing my job right, <laughs> you know, making sure that that we're giving access to folks that in spaces that maybe they might have otherwise not have access to. Awesome, Ali. As we wind down a little bit, what more needs to be done? You know, what are some of the short and longer term goals that you want the listening audience to keep in mind? And what are some potential action steps that they can take to support the vision of YEF, to support the movement partners that you all are supporting? A lot of people have been talking about this next decade of progress, this next decade of transformation. And if we are going to be thinking that way, uh, our funding needs to be reflective of that thought, which truly means multi-year funding. We have seen that organizing works, that the strategies and leadership and relationships that young people of color are moving forward are, are a way to ensure that we build an inclusive democracy. And so at this point, I would say that we need to be thinking about long-term sustainability of talent, of leadership, of organizations, and infrastructure that has already been invested in, that has been built, and that has the energy to do the work. They have the political analysis and the acumen and the people power to keep going. One of the, the things that has been lifted up for us in conversations this year is that we often see, particularly in, at the state level, that there is a drain of talent. So there are organizers who are working at the state level and leading amazing work. They get recruited to places like D.C., New York, and California. So what is the responsibility of philanthropy to ensure that organizations and leaders have the resources and infrastructure so that we, we're not seeing this drain of talent at the state level? The other big thing, if we're thinking forward, is how do we support an ecosystem of governance that is leading with a gender and racial justice perspective? 
I, I would say over the past few years, and I think leading up to the 2018 midterm elections, there has been a huge increase in making sure that people have access to vote, that there are informed voters, and that we're also fighting voter suppression uh, bills that have been coming up. But as we look forward to a, a transformative governance, we need to start thinking about what that looks like. How do we support the holistic ecosystem of governance? How do we support the organization uh, that is building the leaders and putting forward the demands that the community is calling for? How do we support the elected officials, the movement folks who are running for office to ensure that they have what they need to govern once they get elected? And that we are really looking at at this ecosystem of governance in a holistic way. That's really powerful because, as you said, you're doing work to prepare us for that moment of hitting majority in 2036, which is right on its way. And in fact, in some communities, is already here. So I appreciate that, Ale. For your fellow resource organizers and movement builders and frontline community organizers in the civic engagement and racial and social justice space, do you have any parting words, any jewels of wisdom that you might want to share with them as they continue the good fight? Oh, goodness. I I think that it's important that we know ourselves and that we stay true to who we are and rooted in our relationships, in our own lived experiences and that of our communities and of our ancestors. I think that's really the foundation that will allow us to stand in our power. So the way that I try to approach my work is by being aware that everyone has a different history and and different livelihoods that they are engaged with. But in movement work, if we really want to be transformative, we have to be open to stepping into difficult conversations with each other and to challenge each other. I think that's really where the substance of the work comes to life and really takes us to a whole nother level of relationship building, of strategy, of how we engage with each other. So I often say that I try to, in the relations that I'm in, that I try to push my colleagues to the edge without pushing them off the cliff. So how do we get to a space where, yes, we're being challenged while making changes, but making sure that that we're not completely falling off? Not being shoved off the cliff or shoving each other off, but not letting each other stay in the safety zone. Correct. Won't grow. That's a hard dance, Ale, especially in the <laughs> pandemic where I feel like, you know, we've been grappling with, I think my sector has a lot to gain from approaching and embracing transformative conversations, humility. I say it as a person of color who entered a sector where that was not prized and valued. I think it's just, you know, I've been in philanthropy for six years and it's now that I'm seeing people bake this into their philanthropic practice. Mm -hmm. And I'm excited about it. I'm sure others have done it and held it. We've had phenomenal funder advocates and allies for decades who've been leading in that way. But I think now as we think about trust-based philanthropy and all these other movements, this is an opportunity to really think of and embrace those approaches and y'all holding funder and movement at the intersections have a lot to teach us about how to do that as well, because you're both, you have a foot in both. And so it's really powerful. 
Ale, thank you so much for making time to talk with us. We can't wait to see um, what is coming up next for YEF. Do you want to give us a teaser real quick of what folks should be looking out for in the next six to nine months in coming out of the YEF shop? So we are currently in the middle of our organizational development process. So we are honing in what the next phase of our strategic plan is going to look like, which goes to 2023. But this year, we are looking to launch our first multi-year initiative, which is going to support a set of youth of color focused organizations and leaders who are 35 and under with multi-year grants and specific supports for management, executive coaching, and digital support to ensure that all the, the talent uh, and infrastructure that has been built in places like Arizona and Georgia is not lost in between election cycles. So that's really exciting. We are also working with movement partners in the states to imagine what youth collaboratives at the state level might look like. Part of youth leadership development is also that there is growth and transition. And if we are thinking long-term about this new decade of transformation, we need to think about making sure that there's an infrastructure for young people who want to get involved to be able to plug in and play. And so we're talking about what that might look like at the state level and how YEF can support those efforts. Fantastic. So thank you so much, Ale, for being with us today. And thank you everyone for listening. This was Out of the Margins with YEF Director Alejandra Ruiz. Thank you for listening. Your musical construction and I reckon ball the beat. If you down for liberation, then I reckon we should meet. Slavery was not abolished, just polished and put in prisons. And the new Jim Crow, word up to the resistance.